okay. <laughs> We're rolling. <laughs> it's fine. This is fine. Uh, <clears throat> blame Bill Gates. <laughs> oh, this is going to be that's, a shout. Uh, that's, uh, no, that's, that's the intro. That's, the that's intro. it right there. That's definitely the intro. <laughs> yeah, that's back the intro. Second takes here Keep on the it. Arena Craft Podcast, a show <laughs> dedicated exclusively to Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna, Arjuna the Endlessly Mirthful. Here with me today is Kovac Go Blue, the world's funniest man. Hi, we're in a good mood. It's a good day. We're here today to talk about content and to have a good time, which is what we always do on the Arena Craft Podcast. And uh, for any of you wondering why I'm not in the lair of the Hydra like I usually am, uh, it's because I'm on the road. So uh, if my audio sounds a little echoey or whatever, don't worry about it. Kovaco Blue. Yes. How are you doing? I am doing good. Today is a good day. I got a lot of sleep. Long, like, lack of detail story is that I haven't been getting as much sleep as I used to. But now, last night, I got a lot of it. So I, I feel great today. How are you? Dude, I slept well as well. I'm starting to think there's a causative link between sleeping a long time and feeling good. Who would have put that one together? I mean, we're not doctors. No, nothing we say on the Arena Craft Podcast is medical advice. Although I will say that sometimes stepping away from the arena when you feel angry is a good idea. Take that as a, but, but I'm not a doctor. Going to sleep instead of playing more arena sometimes feels better in the morning. There seems to be a causative link between not playing arena and your life feeling better. Uh, but I'm not a doctor, so don't worry about it. So today we're actually going to spend a fair amount of time talking about things that don't directly necessarily relate to Magic the Gathering Arena, but it's a, it's a big time in the Magic world. And so yes, today we're going to be talking about organized play announcements. Kovaco Blue and I have both been interested in Magic for you know, centuries, it feels like. If you're a person who was playing Magic before the arenas, there was this thing called the Pro Tour, which was basically like the most exciting thing that ever happened to anyone interested in Magic. And they're bringing them back. And I'm sure if you've been following CGB's content for a long time, you will know that CGB is a massive fan of the Pro Tour. And uh, we're definitely going to be talking about that today. We're also going to be talking about the some new cards that have been spoiled for a new Capenna. Because why not? It's another week. We should have new cards to talk about every week. I mean, that's this is our life now. This is what we do. So, yep, we're going to be talking about some multicolored nonsense, and that's going to be a good time. First, CGB, I couldn't help but noticing we were both like looking around to, you know, get our content going. And um, what's this I see about... Are they making magic more accessible? What's going on here, dude? Okay, for everybody at home wondering what the hell were they laughing at and feeling out of the joke, I clicked on this article on Daily MTG that announced a new secret layer called Secret Layer Knows It's Left From Its Other Left. It is announcement saying, finally, we have left-handed magic cards. And maybe you can take a better shot at describing this with words. I'm just lazy now. I'm a visual medium creator. So Bottle Brush, shout out to Bottle Brush, our great editor for the podcast as it goes on YouTube, is going to put some images over here. And I don't have to describe them. It's fine. This is fine. But uh, you, the orator, you have to describe these for the kids at home. So basically, they've taken magic cards and they've kind of horizontally flipped some of the aspects of them. So for example, the mana cost is on the left, the name is on the right. 
They've also put the power and toughness on the left. And the best one here is a Planeswalker, where the loyalty is on the left and the plus abilities are on the right. Making magic more accessible, CGB. I don't even have to ask because I know you're right-handed, Kovako Blue. You give off that 90% of the population Chad kind of energy. But me over here, the weirdo, I'm actually a left-handed player. So for me, this is going to be a huge change to the game for me to be able to get all of my cards in the lefty version. All right, I'm, I'm out here. Now I just have to carry this uh, lefty gamer content-wise. It's it's fine. CGB slowly scoots his chair away and quits the podcast forever. This is like the Homer backing into the hedge meme. <laughs> when left meets the right, magical things happen. That's a real song, by the way. That's a real song? You didn't make that up? It's from the 90s. It was an R. Kelly B-side. What are you talking about? An R. Kelly B-side? That's what B-sides are. They're the left-handed side of the record, dude. We got there. It's true. It's very true. So this is an April Fool's story. It was dated April 1st, and Arjuna pointed this out to me after like my eyes had already popped about halfway out of my head. You know, and I was like, what the hell is this? Because here's the problem with April Fools and the internet. First of all, you avoid the internet for the day if you don't want to get April Fooled, but it's on the internet. So if you come back, like I do, to Daily MTG looking for my latest in magic news and announcements, and you see an article and you click on it and it doesn't register with you right away that it was posted on April 1st, even though it's no longer April 1st, you read it as if it's a real announcement, which is what I did here. And I was like, what the hell is all this? And it got me. It got me really bad. Even though yesterday I went, I was 100 and 0. I was undefeated. Nobody got me with April Fool's yesterday, but they got me the day after, which is not fair. Hey, April Fool's articles should just expire. I don't know how everyone else feels about this, but I personally just want to erase April 1st from the calendar. It's going to be like February now. It's like February is the weird month. I want April to start on April 2nd. What's wrong with that? You know, that's a personal thing. You take the day off. Whatever. Just don't leave your house. Just don't turn on your internet devices. Dude, they just got rid of daylight savings, man. We, we can be the difference we want to see in the world. No, no, no. April Fools is important. We have to protect trolling where <laughs> there has to be there has to be some trolling in the world. People can't just exist in their own happy little comfort bubbles, man. You got to be able to shake them up and get a little something out of them cuz too many people now they just curate their little their little content world and Facebook and Twitter serve them whatever they want and they live in a little bubble where they are the center of it and everything is warm and fuzzy and somebody's got to go in there sometimes and be like, "I shake you up." Surprises! Surprises can be good. They can be the best things in life. Kovac Go Blue, patron saint of morons. Without April Fool's Day, you wouldn't have a new undefeated 100% win rate on ladder mono red deck that I posted yesterday. We move, crafties. <laughs> it's my most viewed video on YouTube in a while, so... I didn't know, but that was going to be my next question, is if you participated. Mm, it's totally not clickbait. Booyah! All right. Man name. Well, uh, crafties, go watch that video. You may or may not be about to get rickrolled. Let's get into the fleshy part of the episode, CGB. Organized play. People have been waiting on the edges of their chairs with bated breath, trying not to get an aneurysm with how angry they've been over organized play. So they made an announcement this week, which when you're listening to this, Crafties will be last week, about organized play. And CGB, give it to us. What was the big announcement? The article's title is The Return of the Pro Tour, Your Path to Playing Magic at the Highest Level. This was very 
spoilery for somebody being like, I haven't read it. Are you ready, chat? We're going to go read it. I'm like, post the link. I don't want to have to go search it because I'll see something. And so they post the link in my chat. It's literally called The Return of the Pro Tour. I'm like, oh, yeah. But yeah, they're bringing back the Pro Tour. What can you say? The Pro Tour was a big part of my life. It gave me something to aspire for and chase. It gave me uh, something that I could try to be good at, not just good at, like one of the best in the world at. And they're bringing it back. And they gave all that up for a period of time for MPL. And they changed things to Mythic Championships and Players Championships. None of it stuck. I mean, as recently as a week ago, we were watching, or two weeks ago, I guess, we were watching the Neon Dynasty set championship coverage and i just called it the pro tour the whole time i'm like i'm not gonna change i'm done changing i'm done trying to figure out what they want these called so they're changing it back to the pro tour so shall we start breaking down how to get to the pro tour or do you have anything else to say about the pro tour first it's like the tour that everyone likes you know it's like the place everyone wanted to be it's the real deal i'm just like really glad that they had it back it kind of makes me feel like arena's like the red-headed stepchild of the magic ecology system they could not give us an arena pro tour first of all this big announcement is for the paper product so i guess that gets out of the way what might be a very important question to some people but there is an announcement coming at the end of april that they talked about multiple times that is the kind of the digital organized play announcement and what most people are expecting is the path for a digital play to get to the paper pro tour but there are three pro tours a year. There are three regional championships a year. There were a lot more events when they did the Mythic Championship Series before COVID happened. Like, there are no Grand Prix. So that was something that they used to do monthly, at least. Like, bi-monthly, pretty often, and around the world. Technically, there are a lot less super high-level events. I think there might still be room for those Mythic Championship-style events where, specifically to Arena, they bring together the best Arena players in the world and they battle on LAN. Uh, also, that leans into something that's upcoming, which is that DreamHack is going to be the U.S. organizer for the Pro Tour. For not the Pro Tour, but for the Regional Championships and the Regional Championship qualifiers. Um, so we'll get to that, but DreamHack is an eSports org in the U.S., known for hosting like spectator festival type LAN events. And they have done an arena on LAN tournament. Aaron Gertler won it just before COVID set in. So yeah, pretty big news with DreamHack being a part of this. That's totally awesome. So they definitely seem to be like pulling out some of the stops as far as this. You know, I think for anyone expecting it to be like another super disappointing milk toast kind of magic announcement, it seems to be the real deal. And while it may not include all of the perks that have been offered to magic pros over time, it seems to be a pretty good start, a pretty good bite at the apple coming back. It also does try to address things like that. There's a lot of stuff. We're kind of jumping around. You know, we can go after each one as we go. Where do you want to start with this? Let's just talk about the structure. They've brought back something resembling the old structure, which they had. So in order to, how do you qualify for the Pro Tour? The first thing that you do is you go to a regional championship qualifier. This is what used to be called like RPTQ or something. In the very, 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 very beginning. <laughs> Pro Tour qualifiers were pretty big events that you had to drive a long way to in the very, very, very beginning with a lot of people, like hundreds of people usually hosted in like hotels, but sometimes in larger stores and conference centers. They spread that out and they made PTQs like things you could do at your game store. 
at the game store level, the PTQs and the Pro Tour itself, during a lot of years, they kept growing and growing, and the game stores just got overwhelmed. So they created our PTQs, which are big tournaments, again, like at the very, very beginning that you would go to play a PTQ, a Pro Tour qualifier, like at the game store level to qualify for an RPTQ. And then you had to go to the RPTQ, which was a much bigger tournament, and qualify there. And then you went to the Pro Tour. So I got it wrong. At the bottom of the pyramid, what used to be the PTQ is now the regional championship qualifier. <clears throat> so hopefully there'll be, you know, a tournament in your area or at least somewhat close to your area. This wait, okay, so the the regional championship qualifiers happen at LGSs, is that right? Yes, the regional championship qualifiers should happen in your LGS at Wizards Plane Network stores. From what I read, it sounds like any Wizards Plane Network store can host one regional championship qualifier per quarter, I think, per season or whatever it is. They also, and this is a blockbuster, you're going to love this, the store chooses the format. They have four formats to choose from. Draft, of whatever the current set is, Modern, Pioneer, Standard. That is freaking sweet. Big news there, because uh, as we all know, there are definitely different scenes in different places that prefer different formats. So... That's a really, really good start. So basically, you drive to your LGS. Hopefully, if you have one, or you drive to the nearest city that you know has a store that hosts this event, you know, up to once per quarter, you get to participate in one of these. And then, if you do well in that event, then you get the chance to go to a regional championship, which is kind of like what CGB was talking about before, where you drive probably to, you know, your nearest really big city. No. Did I get it wrong? No, it is not like that. I, I see why you think that, because that does logically follow with the old system. It is not like that. The regional championship, when we talk region, we're not talking the Great Lakes region versus the Great Plains region. We're not talking the West Coast region versus the East Coast region. When they talk region, they're talking North of frickin' America. They're talking the USA, the whole US. It's like a U.S. championship for the U.S. Canada also has their own regional championship. South America, Europe has their own regional championship. You know, Japan, places like that have their own. But yeah, we're talking about really big areas. We're talking about semi-continental regional championships. And this one is going to be held, I believe it's in November of this year, at the, a DreamHack Run event in Atlanta. It's for the whole U.S., and it looks like it's going to be a very, very big tournament. Dude, I believe it's going to be huge. I mean, it's probably going to be one of the best attended tournaments in Magic history, I would imagine. And this is what's really exciting about the DreamHack stuff. So on the article page, if you go to Regional Championship Qualifiers, they have links to all the different organizers. Now, obviously, I've spent my time on the DreamHack page because I'm in the U.S., but there are different organizers. I did click around for Australia, for Europe. None of them seem to be flushed out, have all this information available on day one the way DreamHack does. But the DreamHack site is absolutely loaded. And when you read about these events that they're putting on it's kind of insane so dreamhack atlanta magic showdown they're going to have the big battle which they're calling the magic showdown but they're also going to have fun and casual events every day artist alley community focused vendors 20k open events command zone more of that kind of thing cosplaying and art competitions learn to plays and various commander events you can play commander all over dreamhack so it's like a full-blown magic fest with the biggest from all over the U.S. tournament at the same time, which, like, as a person who start who attended stuff, it did become very samey over the years. 
Like it stopped feeling special. When I went to my the last U.S. Nationals I was qualified for, I was really disappointed. They had very few vendors. It was just the U.S. National Tournament, and I think there might have been a Yu-Gi-Oh! tournament in the same hotel that weekend or something. And there wasn't coverage. It didn't feel special. It was folding chairs and tables, you know? It it didn't feel like anything to me. This, just looking at the page, you're like, oh, if I show up as a fan who is not qualified, I'm going to have a lot of stuff to do besides hang out and wait to hear bad beat stories between rounds. It seems like that, yeah, that trying to get that kind of GP experience. You can show up and choose your own adventure. And if you want to play competitively, you can. And, you know, if you qualified, whatever, you can do that. And if you don't, it's just going to be a big old party and you can play whatever format you want and have fun. That's really cool. I'm glad to see that they're still going to be pushing events like that because obviously there's a much larger group of people who want to travel and enjoy a magic event than just people who want to play super furrowed brow magic. I'm stoked to hear about that. So you go to a regional championship. Yeah, it's going to be one of those global regions that CGB outlined. And then if you do well there, you get a chance to play on the Pro Tour. CGB, have they provided us what the player sizes of these Pro Tours are going to be? I imagine because they have this kind of tiered structure they probably have like a set number of players in mind i don't think we have a a sure how many they're expecting we have something like that for worlds because the world's size has fluctuated over the years but not for the pro tour i mean we have some number of the invites but it looks like they're i would expect them to be 300 to 400 players like they have been in the past so the pro tours exactly they're going to be just like kind of the cream of the crop from all of these more regional tournaments and they said that they're going to be doing three of them in 2023 nothing happening this year in terms of the actual pro tour but next year we're going to have three the set championship model is going to continue for this year then going to die like it's not going to be the whatever the new set is next year the return to ravnica 4 pro tour that's not how it's going to work it's very unclear right now what the formats will be like is it going to be a two-week-old format or is it going to be a 10-week-old format when the pro tour happens we don't know those are the kind of things that i really want to know i love when the pro tour showcases new and exciting decks with new cards before they get stale we also know that the first pro tour or at least the first regional i think it is is going to be pioneer yeah, Pioneer is going to be the format that's going to kickstart the pro season next year when they start doing this in, in full. How do you feel about that? Well, they're trying to save Pioneer. That was a format that had a lot of buzz, and it was going to be the Players Tour paper magic format of choice. And then they cut it because of COVID, and there was no way to play it on Arena, so they didn't use it. So I think it's really good for the format of Pioneer. I know that it has a player base that is pretty passionate, and they need to grow that player base, or the format itself would probably die. Yeah, a little privilege there, perhaps. It's weird to think that you can qualify playing things like Historic, but then have to figure out a whole other format like Pioneer. I guess we don't know that you can qualify playing Historic yet. I'm expecting that in the announcement next month. We've kind of had it too good on Arena for a while, where we've basically had access to levels of pro play of everything has gone through Arena, so we've never felt like they were playing a format we couldn't play or had that feels bad, you know what I mean? And we're going to have to live with that, I guess. But Pioneer, I will say, is a very accessible format. As somebody who's played Magic for a good amount of years, 
maybe that's a little uh, <laughs> biased. I feel like I understand what the cards do and what the decks are trying to accomplish compared to something like modern, where when somebody starts playing ad nauseum, I don't know what's happening. I hope that a majority of the people who would be interested in something like the Pro Tour can get into some Pioneer. But I also had this theory that people couldn't get into watching old Pro Tour coverage because they just didn't know what the cards did and that they wouldn't find it as interesting as I do. But I had another Pro Tour watch party yesterday and they're pretty well attended, not like my normal streams, which can max out at like 800 to 900 concurrent viewers. The Pro Tour watch party of a, like a 2012 Pro Tour gate crash, it maxed out at like 400 viewers, no 500 viewers. So that's down significantly, but still there were a lot of people who didn't know what these cards did. I was there trying to help explain and guide what they were trying to achieve and people still found it very interesting. So I'm optimistic that this is going to be fine. One of the things I like about it is that it's a non-rotating format. And I do think that tournaments in non-rotating formats have a greater longevity, right? You can go back and watch an old modern tournament and be like, well, all of those cards are still in the format. A lot of people play archetypes that are kind of similar to these archetypes, and so that's pretty cool. What I like about it is that I do think that Pioneer is a great kind of on-ramp to competitive paper play for anyone who maybe started on Arena. You know, it's a great way for people to start growing a collection and start collecting some staples and not worry that they're gonna rotate or, you know, be immediately kind of outdated. It's also, at somewhat like price accessible format. I mean, if you compare the price of the average Pioneer deck to the price of the average, like any format older than Pioneer deck, I think Pioneer decks probably cost on average like a quarter to a tenth of the price of like a modern deck or a legacy deck. I think that that's really cool. And, you know, as someone who's played, I, I wouldn't say a lot of Pioneer, but I've definitely played the format before. And I think it's a really cool format. I would say that it's like somewhat analogous in power level to Historic. Pioneer has access to a lot of cards that Historic does not. However, Historic also has access to some insanely powerful cards that Pioneer does not. So I think if you're the kind of person who enjoys the play styles, the deck archetypes, all that kind of thing in Historic, I think that you'll catch on to Pioneer pretty quickly and you know, you'll even recognize there are a number of archetypes which are kind of pretty good in both formats. So how does Teferi Time Raveler do in that Pioneer format, by the way? <laughs> okay, you had to pick one of the notable examples. So yes, you, you can still play that card in Pioneer somehow, not quite sure how. We don't have like Archmage's Charm. I think that it's going to be a pretty smooth transition for anyone who's used to playing Historic. And uh, I, for one, welcome our new Pioneer Overlords. Okay, cool. It'll be fun. I I'm just glad to have the Pro Tour back, so I'll definitely watch a Pro Tour in Pioneer and enjoy it. You know what else they said about the Pro Tour? It's gonna have that draft thing going on. Yeah, the first three rounds of both days are going to be draft. That I was like, oh, our June will be happy, I guess. Oh, baby, competitive limiting. It's a dagger to my heart. <laughs> yeah, is this a return to CGB sleeping in? Hey, hey, that's the bright side. If I do the watch parties, I get to sleep in. Although, I mean, if these Pro Tours are anything like the regional championships where you can actually go there, hang out and do stuff, I'm going. Lock me in. I'm there. Yeah, but you'll still be sleeping in. Yeah, that's true. I'm happy to hear about this. I find competitive limited to be really fun to watch, especially the draft portion. I'll tell you what, man. If you want a masterclass in drafting a format, watch them do it at the Pro Tour. It's really, really exciting.
And then, you know, you can go and make a sandwich while they're playing the games or whatever. I mean, that's basically it, Crafties. I'm sure that there's, like, pros on other podcasts who, you know, have, like, hours and hours and hours of things that they want to talk about regarding this. I don't. But more than anything, like, I'm just stoked that we're returning to Pro Tour events with coverage. Yes, that is in there, too. It's one line in, like, four different articles, but you can find it. They are bringing coverage. And uh, that's just really exciting. So I'm just looking forward to a whole generation of arena players who get to watch, I mean, maybe not Pioneer right away, but it's going to happen where they're eventually going to get to watch maybe a standard tournament or just like a tournament in a format that they're really into and watch like the live paper coverage and watch the live real analog players sitting in the chair scratching their butts muttering whatever and uh it's a special experience it really is i'm happy for you crafties that you get to look forward to that can we cover just a little community salt here oh lay it on me baby the magic esports twitter died the day that this announcement was made they changed it to at play mtg (laughs) the magic esports initiative officially died on uh, March 31st, 2022, meaning it lasted just a little over 1,200 days. My streak almost lasted as long as the Magic Esports Initiative. It was a demise that was pretty much foretold, but still a little sad. And I definitely do wonder like, what the future is for competitive digital events. They're talking about having certain paths to the Pro Tour from playing and it is super ironic that the most esporty thing they have ever done which is partner with dreamhack to hold their tabletop events schadenfreude yeah (laughs) it happens at the same time that their esports twitter handle dies it gives you a little bit of is it schadenfreude is that the term because they took a system that was by no means perfect but overall had a lot going for it and a lot of history and something that a lot of people loved. And they tore it up from the roots and they didn't directly promise this, but they basically promised that 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 esports would be better. That was the idea, that that we were going to tear up the system that you love and try to deliver you something even better, go even bigger. And it would be better for everybody in the long run, you know, bigger prizes, more exposure, big more prestige. And when there were problems with it, and people pointed out those problems, they really dug their heels in. They were completely off. They just ignored a lot of their community blatantly to do this esports thing. And it was a very like, we know best and we're taking the shot. And they definitely didn't do it with uh, the community on their side. So there's going to be a lot of like ding dong, the witch is dead kind of behavior. Yes, indeed. And I mean, it's sad what this announcement shows to me more than anything else is that wizards does really have like pushing 30 years of experience organizing these kind of events maybe more like 25 but you know even if they're coming up with something that's kind of new here they have like a really solid foundation of that they do not have a solid foundation of organizing esports events or basically participating in esports in any way. And it has, it really shows. It showed then, it shows now. So we continue to see where the focus is. It sounds like they've got some kind of an idea for how competitive play is going to continue on Arena. So I feel moderately hopeful. You know, they're continuing to do these opens, which I think are a really good idea. And, you know, there's a lot of potential. So I'm not going to totally write them off. Probably going to be more like, um, you know, there's like this super dedicated group of grinders who still play MTGO events. 
you know, they're like really into it and people still win money and things still happen and they still have clout, right? So I, I feel like yeah, that'll probably continue on Arena as well. Let's transition on here to talking about some new cards. CGB, it looks like we're actually getting a chance to meet some of these uh, mob bosses. They're quite cuddly, aren't they? I find all of them very charming as well. <laughs> I was just using a charm joke. It was a pun. It went over the head. So do you want to start with the charms or do you want to start with the bosses? Where do you want to go with this? Let's see. I've got a little list here. Let's start with the bosses. You, you were going to the bosses and I made a charm joke. This is on me. I'll read some cards and we'll see what you think of them. It'll be fun. All right. I'm going to read Jetmere Nexus of Revels. This is one and a red, green, white. So this is your Naya boss. It's four total mana. Mythic. Legendary creature. Cat demon. I was wondering what creature that was. I was like leaning into my camera. I have a demon cat. Uh, you know, these are very real creature types. I definitely have a demon cat. This is a 5-4. Creatures you control get plus one plus O oh, and have vigilance as long as you control three or more creatures. Creatures you control also get plus one plus O oh, and have trample as long as you control six or more creatures. Creatures you control also get plus one plus O oh, and have double strike as long as you control nine or more creatures. That's it. That's the card. What do you think of this card? I think this card's going to be really fun to build around in Commando. Definitely a format where people sometimes enjoy making wide boards and kind of memeing around. And so, yeah, I think this is going to be really, really cool and fun for a certain kind of player in, in the Commando format. As far as Constructed, nah, it's a little hard for me to imagine it. I feel like usually when you're going super wide, you usually have a more concise game plan or maybe better things to do to finish the game in your average 60 card deck than slamming Jetmere. Yeah, I don't know. It's a powerful card. If going wide is the thing that you're doing, like let's say for example, if you have six or more creatures and you jam Jetmere, you're probably just alpha striking your opponent. Yeah, then you have plus two plus O Vigilance and Trample on all of your creatures. I, I, I was going to say that. I think that if you can hit six with this, that's the threshold. So I'm expecting this set to have a lot of this particular, are we calling them families? Yeah, the family. Okay, this particular family is probably going to have a lot of these token creatures, all right? It's just, there's going to be a lot of cats and various animals on the battlefield. So if there are, say they bring back a card like Hordling Outburst, that is three mana to make three one one tokens. Like that's the kind of thing that would enable it. So it would take that type of support in the set for this to be a player. Otherwise, I wouldn't craft it for Arena. That That's where I stand on it. This might be the card that takes Covert Gogina into playing Naya. Yeah, she saw this on Twitter. And um, for those who don't know, my wife is just kind of getting into magic. She's like, honey, I saw this new card. It's like a cat and it's a demon. And when you have a lot of creatures, they get a lot of abilities. And I would really like it to be a commander deck. You know, I make her sound like a little kid, but she's kind of adorable. Like this is a thing that she just does when she sees something that she wants. Uh, it's not creepy at all, like some of you are going to try to imply. It's totally adorable. <laughs> Confirmed adorable. Easy upgrade to a Kahira deck there. It's pretty sweet. Let's talk about Rafine the Scheming Shear. This is the, uh, the Sean Connery card of the set. This is an Esper card. So uh, yes, white, blue, and black. And uh, <laughs> this is a legendary creature, Sphinx Demon. And it's a 1-4, and it has flying and ward 1. Whenever you attack, target attacking creature connives X, new keyword. 
where x is the number of attacking creatures. So it connives x, x is the number of attacking creatures. The ability text on connive reads, draw x cards, then discard x cards. Put a plus one plus one counter on that creature this way for each non-land card discarded this way. This doesn't scream go wide, but it's another card that definitely gets buffed off you having more rather than less attacking creatures. So just something to note, we might have a fair number of like tokens or just incentives for us to be swinging with a lot of creatures in this set, which I find interesting. It kind of makes me wonder whether it's here's the boss and then we have all of our minions kind of a setup going on here. First of all, like what do you think of this connive keyword CGB? Like, it sounds like a kind of a narrow thing that if you put it on creatures of different colors, like, how does it translate? Should everybody be able to Prismari command? Should everybody be able to rummage? You know, should everybody be able to draw two, discard two? It's kind of weird that we're just spreading that mechanic onto a keyword. It reminds me of surveil, whereas surveil felt like, okay, well, that's just a strictly blue keyword, right? Ended up being like the black blue keyword. It feels like it's going to be a, an Esper-centric keyword, maybe also leaning into Grixis because just of the nature of drawing and discarding. So uh, that, that's my take on it. Uh, but it is really something that discarding non-land cards here continues to buff creatures, getting you bigger and bigger like power toughness kind of pushes. Whereas like usually when you're drawing cards, you're not also growing your creature. So it sounds like a very powerful effect for just leaning a little more aggressive than you're used to. I could see a card like this going very well into like some kind of an eye twitchy deck, a deck that like plays some value docs and stuff. And especially if you have like little dinky flying threats as well, then I think a card like this could be very good. So I'm definitely interested to see, you know, if we have some card which is like sorcery, make two birds or whatever, a card like this could actually be really powerful a little bit of an interesting one but yeah it could have, it could find a home i'm worried that this is really good let's just think it through how do you kill it you have kind of one turn also to get your deal four off through award one to kill it uh, i mean that's a good point that's a good point so we can't vanishing verse it we can't deal three it we need a deal four that's a good point that you raise let's say you play a card that you've never seen before on turn two uh, this card called luminarch ass pirate haven't heard of it, but I'm sure I'll get there eventually. You play that on turn two, and you put the counter on itself. We'll assume that you played like a Trium on turn one just to be reasonable and not make this total magical Christmas land. I'm sorry, a... a... Rafine's Tower. You played a Rafine's Tower on turn one. <laughs> um, so, turn one, you played a, a land that taps for three colors of mana. Turn two, you play a Luminarch Aspirant, and you put the counter on itself. Turn three, if you play this, you can take that Luminarch Aspirant, put a counter on itself, attack with that Luminarch Aspirant, put a counter on that Luminarch Aspirant by drawing and discarding, because it doesn't just trigger when Rafine attacks, it's whenever you attack. This doesn't have to get in the red zone to trigger the ability. It does go off the turn you play it if you played a creature before it, if and it can attack. But in that example I just outlined, Luminarch Aspirant's a 4-4. Four four. On turn 2, you draw a card, you discard a card. That probably doesn't mean nothing. And if they want to deal with Rafine, it has Ward 1. If they do deal with the Luminarch Aspirant, you're still coming in next turn and growing Rafine. That's a really obnoxious sequence. Well, and let's say instead of having your Tryland on turn one, you just played an Eye Twitch. And, uh, you know, the mana's 
pretty good gump coming into this format. So maybe you could have Esper on turn three without having to play your Tri-Land. And you know, now all of a sudden you're you're cracking in with two creatures on turn three, and that connive adds two counters, and you get to draw discard two cards. And I mean, we're starting to get into like that's a really solid opening. If your opponent's not able to deal with that pretty much immediately, they're in a world of pain. And it's really hard to interact with. We were trying to name what kills it. You can't power word kill it. It's a demon. You can Infernal Grasp it and take four, I guess, from the Luminarch Aspire into three. Or Infernal Grasp, it's hard to play in multiples. You can't just run four of that card. It kills you. So you're not going to have that on turn two that often. This card looks like a major pain. I think it might be really good the real question is like what does the rest of the deck look like but i agree the ozov color combination has proven to be very very strong in recent sets basically i feel like this card doesn't need that much to really get there we could be seeing like some kind of an aggressive esper deck and that sounds really exciting to me Ugh, blasphemy disgusting hate it we're supposed to take our time why don't you take us into the Grixis Demon? Good God. Lord Xander, the Collector. Get ready. Buckle up. It's four and a Grixis, so it's a total of seven mana. We're already going down this road. We've seen so many Grixis cards that are like 10,000 generic mana and a Grixis do something. We're all trying to relive the glory of Cruel Ultimatum, which was seven mana. This is a creature, though, and it's a mythic, and it's a 6-6, six, six, and when Xander enters the battlefield, target opponent discards half the cards in their hand rounded down. Wait, there's more. Whenever Xander attacks, defending player mills half their library rounded down. I mean, that is an effect. Can I interest you in one more line of text? When Xander dies, target opponent sacrifices half the non-land permanents they control rounded down. That is an effect on a magic card, which I'm not going to be happy about when it targets you. Do you want me to be the ice water person, or do you want to be the person who throws ice water on this card? I don't know if I can do that, so go for it. You start. This card looks powerful, and I'm not saying it's not powerful, but there's a few things that we have to remember about this card. Before all of you poggies in the chat start flipping out about how like this is the next big thing, Let's just talk about the fact that it costs 7 mana. Just in your average deck, CGB, if you could cast this card, or if you could cast, I don't know, Kiara Best's the Sea God, which of those cards would you be wanting to have on the battlefield? Xander, because it's new. And Poggies. <laughs> Fair enough. How about Coma the Cosmos Serpent? Xander, because it's new, and it's Poggies. <laughs> so I think in a 60-card format, Lord Xander's going to be a little bit awkward because by the time you hit that seven mana, how many cards is your opponent likely to have in their hand? And how many cards is your opponent likely to have in their hand that they're not okay discarding to Lord Xander? So I feel like in the average game of just like 60 card magic on arena, you're gonna hit like one card with this and it's probably gonna be just a land or something or you know, maybe your opponent's vanishing verse that couldn't target the Xander anyway. We're left with a 6-6, six, six, which is yeah, it's, it's pretty good, you know? I think the attack trigger is basically flavor text. You're not going to play this in some as like a top end in a Grixis mill deck or whatever. So I, I wouldn't really worry about that. I think the dies trigger is interesting because if you can get this thing down against an opponent who is building a board presence, it's definitely going to make their life more complicated. If an opponent's got enough permanence to make this trigger a problem for them, it also means that they've been putting a bunch of permanents on the board all the way up until your turn, whatever, six or seven, when you're actually able to cast this thing. 
So I think that the devil in this card is really in the casting cost. If it could come down earlier, it would be better. But then the thing is, if we're cheating stuff into play, why aren't we cheating Lulamog into play or just like some actual game ender? That's kind of my rundown with the card. How does that track with you, CGB? If we're talking about standard, then we've got to talk about reanimator because everything that you say is right, but it does leave out reanimator which if you reanimate this you get an enters the battlefield ability you also have this if it dies ability that can be very very brutal and the attacking ability i agree is mostly flavor text milling the opponent isn't anything too amazing especially if the rest of your deck is focused on reanimating big monsters if you also had to somehow fit in like tasha's hideous laughter copy combo in your reanimator deck then it would matter but i don't think you can do that so uh, I am, though, concerned that the reanimation style of this is pretty good. For example, how Olivia Voldaren, uh, the Crimson Bride, yeah, eh? yeah, eh? comes out, discard half your cards, and it's already attacking. Now, it wouldn't get the mill trigger, but I actually think that's good, because if the opponent uses their graveyard in some way, you don't want to give them that mill trigger. And now you're going to say, oh, but CGB, have you read Olivia? If Olivia dies and gets hit with a removal spell, you have to exile Lord Xander. Oh, but wait, Lord Xander has a little more trick up sleeve. This is a vampire demon noble, and Olivia says as long as you control a legendary vampire, you don't exile that creature you reanimated. So Lord Xander would stay. Like, that's a lot of good. I mean, you're right. So you're, like, playing a, a six-mana card into a reanimated seven-mana card. What are our good reanimating spells in Standard or in Alchemy? Like, I don't track that. Great questions. Um, the best one in standard is going to be really hard to cast with this, and it's going to cause you to go like full reanimator where you don't even plan to cast your big drops, and that's Invoke Justice. Invoke Justice is one white, 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 white. It returns a permanent from the graveyard to the battlefield, and you put four plus one plus one counters on creatures you control. That's much better with haste cards than it is with this. Like, that's much better with Velomachus. With Vorinclex, that swings for 14, 14 trample, which is pretty funny haste <laughs> but um so that i don't know if this makes it with invoke justice the other reanimation spells in standard olivia crimson bride and return upon the tides um which is foretell and then you can cast it for four so i have seen some return upon the tides deck so maybe we'll see that in standard alchemy is where it gets saucy alchemy is where you have not the most recent but the second to most recent buff to a card called assemble from parts and assemble from parts I'm so bad at this, but it's like one black mana to give a card in your graveyard the ability to reanimate itself for a black and two generic, I think. And so there's a way that you can do it to have like a turn three reanimation pulled off without ramping. But you have to get this in your graveyard, target it with the assemble from parts, and then assemble it. Mm, okay. Yep. I'm not even sure I have everything about that card correctly, but, you know, Bottle Rush will put the card over here, and maybe it'll have the adjustments from Alchemy made to it. Maybe not, because Gatherer is like that, yo. That is where you might have some things happen to you that you do not expect is in Alchemy. Well, I also saw someone talking about, you know, the three-mana Sauron Planeswalker that lets you put a vampire into play? Oh, that's historic. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three-mana Sauron. So if you're playing historic... And you have some kind of Grixis Vampire deck, that could be a turn three KO right there. Especially like, let's say you're playing a control deck and someone sneaks a Sauron in by you, like that's pretty much game over if you get this thing down on the battlefield. I think if this resolves against 
a number of the control shells that you currently see in Historic, it's it's not going to be fun for them. Uh, this is almost an ultimatum too in Commander with Sneak Attack. It would sacrifice on end step after gaining haste. It's a cool card, man. This card's a player. I think it's a fun card. I think that a lot of people will get trapped by it. You'll probably see at least one kind of fun reanimator and or cheaty the card into play kind of a deck. I don't expect it to stick around, but you know what's interesting, CGB? I feel like Wizards has actually done a good job lately of printing cards like this that where we think, ah, it's probably not going to get there. And then like they somehow make the format in a way in which the card's actually a real player. Maybe like Halana and Elena is not such a good example, but that's a card which I kind of wrote off and it ended up being like one of the better cards that was printed in that set. I feel like cards like this have been getting there more often lately than I feel like they did in the past. I can agree with that. Formats have been pretty interesting as bands come in and seven mana cards get playable again. Uh, definitely want to keep an eye on. Let us now move on to the charmed part of the podcast. The part of the podcast that uh, Arjuna didn't get. They have given us the charms for these three families as well. These are basically all modal instants. They cost one mana of each of the colors in the family, and they all have three effects. So let's kick things off with the Nyawan Cabaretti Charm. This is an instant at uncommon. Choose one, and it costs green, white, red. Choose one. Cabaretti Charm deals damage equal to the number of creatures you control to target creature or planeswalker. Creatures you control get plus one, plus one, and gain trample until end of turn. Or create two one, one green and white citizen creature tokens. So this card is designed to play very well with Jetmere Nexus of Revels. It kind of fills in whichever part of the equation you're missing. Looks like it's going to definitely at least be a consideration in any kind of Naya go wide deck. That's definitely the level one take on this card. Do you see any other possibilities with it, CGB? Honestly, no. I think that's exactly what it's here to do. And I think that it's going to be kind of a trend on these charms. So this might be a little cold water for the charm cycle, but I don't think any of these are nearly designed to be on their own. You must play this powerful level like the charms of the past. I, I haven't seen anything like an Esper charm, you know, or a Naya charm like back in the day. These are cards that are very specifically tailored to address what that family wants to do so that they synergize with the rest of the deck, but they don't make the deck. All of these I would describe as like, you probably want two because if your hand is all Cabaretti Charm, you're doing underrate stuff. You're paying three mana for two one ones. Then you're paying three mana to deal some damage and get a Kabira takedown-like effect. And then you're paying three mana to get a mini overrun. Like, none of this is good. So you can't draw too many of it. You want just a little dash of it in exactly the right place. And that's going to apply to all these charms as we go through them. What do you think about that? Do you think that that's a good design choice? Or are you a little disappointed that we're probably not going to see these charms showing up much in Historic, or maybe we're not going to be prioritizing them that much in Brawl, that kind of thing? I'm with the latter. I like my charms to be very strong effects that fit into the color combination so that I can run them across multiple deck types and formats, whereas these charms are designed very clearly to fit like a deck type. Like you are doing the Jetmere thing. You you need creatures. You're, you are wide board. This is wide board charm. And we'll get into what the Esper and Grixis charms do. That can be really good because it helps you enable deck types right now. But 
there are some commanders I would run this with in Historic Brawl, like Minsk, but there's also a lot of cases where this is just a very okay card and not a great card, and I like powerful cards. I'm with you. I think it's somewhat of a missed opportunity. I think a lot of the previous charms, like you were saying, have definitely found homes over time in Magic and have really proven themselves to perform. And who knows, maybe one or more of these charms will end up being better than they look. I totally agree with you. I haven't seen anything yet that made me like sit up in my chair and go, ooh, we have a new classic on our hands here. No, no Boros Charm or Azorius Charm, although that's a little unfair because they're two colors. I'll read Maestro's Charm. I feel like I threw some cold water on these, but they're still cool cards, and you're going to probably see them many times. And they're uncommons, so they're not hard to get. So that's nice. Maestro's Charm is the Grixis one, and it's an instant. They're all instants. They all cost whatever the guild color, family color is. And the options are... One, look at the top five cards of your library, put one of those cards into your hand and the rest into your graveyard. Second option, each opponent loses three life and you gain three life. Third option, charm deals five damage to target creature or planeswalker. Removal, card selection slash graveyard filling. It's almost like they intend for you to reanimate Xander, huh? And uh, burn. Lose three life, gain three life. I didn't see the burn angle coming. Yeah, the burn one was a little interesting to me. Makes me wonder if there's going to be more burn support or whatnot going on there. The juicy thing there, if you're like used to playing Grixis, is the life gain side. Like, this is a lightning helix without white. Well, but it's only opponent, which is kind of a bummer. The three life, though, you just don't gain life when you play Grixis. This is something Grixis mages know. When we pay life for cards with a card like Greed or Necropotence, it ain't coming back. We're, we're, we're taking this down to this. It's a one-way elevator, okay? Yeah, I agree. This is a very medium power level card. I mean, could be standard playable. Yeah, it could even not, to be honest. It might just not be quite good enough, but it could get there. I was pretty surprised by the five damage to target creature or planeswalker. I thought you'd just get destroy target creature or planeswalker. Yeah, just kill him. That made me raise my eyebrows as well. I was a little disappointed with that. I'm trying to think of what it doesn't kill, though. It's kind of hard to get a sixth toughness in standard right now, right? Doesn't kill coma. What? What? <laughs> Getting back to real life. Well, this, okay, it's going to be really annoying. When your opponent cheats Lord Xander into play and you can't kill it with your Maestro's Charm. So, oops. <laughs> I did it again. I'd say, here's the thing like, you think these five damage effects are going to kill everything, and then all of a sudden your opponent has like a 6 6 Luminarch Aspirant on turn four or something. Oh, yeah, they play Halana and Elena, and all of a sudden all my creatures are like 10 10s or whatever. So, it could come up, right? You play some weird games of magic, but okay, I feel you. It happens. It's, it's going to matter more than you think, Crafties. That's the main point. Or, you know, your opponent plays Oko and you can't even kill it with the damn thing. Oh god, you're right. Alright, let's talk about Obscura Charm. This is the Esper version. Its modes are choose one, return target multicolored permanent card with mana value three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped. Mode two, counter target instant or sorcery spell. Mode three, destroy target creature or planeswalker with mana value three or less. This one's weird. I feel like you play this card for very specific reasons, in my opinion. Destroy target creature or planeswalker with mana value three or less. I can see where it hits a lot of creatures, but not at a rate that you want to do, because you don't want to pay three mana to trade down. Although you'll do it when you have to, but you don't want to. And then destroy target Planeswalker. Three or less? What do we got? Chandra? And Kaido? Kaido, Shizuki, and Chandra, I guess? It's, it's still weird. Yeah, and what's the Azorius one? Nico exists. 
No one plays Nico, but that's another one. I have a Nico deck. Maybe I'll reveal it to the world soon. Anyway, uh, counter target instant or sorcery is super narrow, which makes holding this up very awkward because they might kind of like Quandrix command. If you've, I'm sure as a Simic mage, you've played this. It seems like it should hit a lot of things, but man, do you feel it when they resolve something and you look at your Quandrix command like doesn't counter that. And I definitely don't want to bounce it. <laughs> that that's how i think obscure charm is going to be a lot of those feels so then on the back side of that you're like okay we have this narrow counter ability and this narrow removal ability if i hold up my three mana to play this instant speed charm hopefully i get an archmage's charm like ability where maybe i could get to draw two cards and discard one or something like that some kind of a draw effect so i'm not punished for holding this open but the last ability is return target multicolored permanent card with mana value three or less from the graveyard to the battlefield there's a lot of little restriction in there that make it suck like why tapped that's what i'm saying i feel like they went out of their way to make sure this card wasn't going to be that good because like for example would it have killed them to make it just counter a spell right make it the cancel of the set the harder to cast cancel of the set like white blue black counter a spell that's already pretty restrictive even if you have the mana up it's still arguably just worse than like a drown in the lock or something so I'm a little surprised. I feel like they went overboard on this card with toning it down, but who knows? Again, maybe I'm missing some. Playing out your Kaito and getting to use it a few turns and then your opponent kills it and then you get it back. It's not the worst thing. It also gets back Rafine. Yeah, that's true. I am afraid Rafine might be pretty good, to be honest. So we'll see. But yeah, it does feel like there's a lot of kind of bizarre restrictions on the card return target multicolored permanent with mana value three or less can you think of something besides rafine multicolored permanent you said kaido kaido's all right but it's kind of hard right it's like that really does scale back what you can do with it pretty hard one thing i thought of is silver quill silencer and there's a pretty cool deck i played this last season called the silencer which was all about recasting and playing silver quill silencer with cards like restoration of a ganjo so it was always on the battlefield and this does that it feels like they nerfed this card pretty hard. They did print an Ascendancy in this set already with the, the Broker's Ascendancy. I wonder if they have like an Ascendancy for each color combo. Maybe you could bring one of those back. Maybe that would be relevant somehow. We'll see if they're good Ascendancies, man. The uh, Broker's Ascendancy didn't get me excited. So we're going to have to see if they print an Ascendancy that is, oh yeah, super gasoline, you know? Maybe even a good Ascendancy that somehow makes its way into the graveyard regularly, you know? And then you get it back with the charm and that feels cool or whatever. I wish this one had been a little more powerful. So uh, do you have a favorite card from the six new ones that we've seen? I think that you're right in that Rafine seems to be like the highest upside one or the one that has the most potential to get there. I'm just not much of a Naya or a Grixis gamer. It's been a little bit hard for me to get excited about any of these. Oh yeah, you need something that puts blue and green together. Are you waiting for Bant? Oh, definitely, yeah. When the Bant one hits, we will see whether Arjuna flips the table or not. So I would probably go with the card that I think you are most interested in which is rafine i also think this card could really do something oh cool there's some new cards some more look at the flavor and uh the lords and the logos of the houses and you know we're starting to rev up um this week this coming week is going to be like kind of the big launch type show that they do now where they bring some people in and do some high produced like this is the world we're going through and they try to introduce all the flavors so we'll have more to talk about next week so this is what i'm wondering 
judging from the power level of these cards, I'm not seeing anything that has really knocked my socks off yet. This is a set where they have an opportunity to print powerful three color cards. I'm kind of wondering like in what vein they're going to be. So if it's not going to be like the leads of the family, if it's not going to be the ascendancies, if it's not going to be the charms, I'm just kind of wondering what it is going to be. It's going to be some kind of ultimatum, right? Because, I mean, isn't that just the family, I don't know, gangsta stuff, but doesn't it feel like you should be able to cast an, a seven mana ultimatum and say, hey, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'm so with you, dude. If that's what they end up doing, you know me. Who's more of an ultimatum gamer than the Arjuna man? Every single ultimatum is going to have a mode that says, take an extra turn after this one. Easy. Powerful. Right? Fun. Fun magic. Fun magic returns, dude. I want them to print another Grixis ultimatum because I want to be able to galvanic iteration an ultimatum in this format. If I can do that, that's going to be a good time. That's my only hope. I feel like this is going to be a powerful set, and I'm just wondering where the power is going to end up being. I love formats where ultimatums are playable. That's, that was one of the things I loved most about like when Ikaria was in standard, was that we had multiple ultimatums that actually ended up being in like tier 1 or tier 2 decks. And I think that whenever that's possible to do in a format, I think it's really cool, personally. It just means that it plays to the things that I like in Magic, which is ramping, going big, and actually having the time to do that, or actually not having enough cards in the format to consistently punish you for having a top end like that. Maybe it's just because that's the way that I like to play Magic. But I do think that any format in which you get to just like hard cast expensive flashy spells and have them be cool, personally, I think that that is a cool format. So I'm looking forward to that, hoping that that will be the case. You're the type who enjoyed all the Emergent Ultimatum nonsense. So I recently revisited Emergent Ultimatum in Historic just to get some of those good old feels going on. And it turns out that that's still a pretty fun archetype to play, and it can still do pretty powerful things. But I actually... The, so the big question with Emergent Ultimatum has always been, how do I guarantee a win? How do I have it be, if I resolve this spell... I win the game 100% of the time always. And that continues to be a really fun puzzle to try to solve. The Vorinclex-Liliana combination, I think it's what, Liliana-Waker of the... I don't remember what that... that Professor Onyx, dude. No, it's not Professor Onyx. We have a better one. What? The War of the Spark-Liliana. What was she called? Dreadhorde General? Dreadhorde General. So the so what you're trying to do is you're trying to force your opponent to let you have Vorinclex and Liliana Dreadhorde General because her ultimate is your opponent chooses one permanent of each type and sacks the rest, right? Right, okay, yeah. So the split that I've been doing is Vorinclex, Dreadhorde General, and Omniscience. And people do not want to give you Omniscience. That's the idea. Your idea of fun is very specific. <laughs> I want to squeeze my opponent. Dude, I'm basically a crime boss over here. Even though the split in Historic is a lot more ball-breaking than it was in Standard. People still get out of it, dude. I've had multiple people just like shrug off a Liliana ultimate and then just win anyway. I was playing against a Bard class deck. They're like, cool, I'll keep one land, I'll keep a Bard class, and I'll keep whatever cool legendary creature I had out and just proceed to combo off and kill me on the next turn. Yeah, it turns out that Historic Best of One can actually be a pretty fun format sometimes.
Wow. Yeah, okay. I didn't think I'd hear that this week. These are some of the ways that I'm preserving my sanity playing Arena these days. Yeah, I, I also played some historic best of one this week. I played a, an event, one of those seven win events, with Tainted Pact Combo, because I still had it saved from a year ago when Thassa's Oracle wasn't banned. Uh, dude, you are the ultimate crime boss over here. I got nothing on your level of evil CGB. Oh, my opponents loved it. Everything about that deck is still very legal, except for the oracle and it's the win con and it's like the last card you see so they're hanging out just being like they're not going to be able to win i don't know why they're doing this and then you play the card that's been banned for a year and they're like nice <laughs> i was wondering how many nices you got <laughs> and you know what it's the ultimate get out of the matchmaker thing because they're not going to pair you against uh, the same deck because nobody else can play it yeah, you just have you just have to sign up for the event and then wait almost a whole freaking year before you play it. Patience is a wing con, dude. It's the ultimate long con, dude. Well, I think we answered the question of who is the more evil co-host on the show. Some are willing to play the villain. You know what else is evil? According to everybody, alchemy is evil. Do we want to hit these rebalancings that happened? Let's take it really quickly. I'm just going to cover what I think are the notables. I don't want to read all these because there's a bunch of cards in here I've never even heard of that are getting rebalanced. And we have the example from Venture, right? When they rebalanced Venture, the cards that were pretty damn good got better. And it's like those ended up being the cards that got played, not the cards that were terrible and became passable you know what i mean those cards didn't get played so this round uh going live on april 7th uh, thursday if you're listening to this in week one is going to buff warriors and elves are, are either of those your jam i call him tyvar keck w for a reason i'm definitely not one of these people who tried to go hard on week one i'm not a believer but yeah, if there's one thing that the Venture buff taught me, it was not to underestimate these cards, for sure. There's a lot of buffs on this. I'm just going to cover the things that I think are cool. So Bruner Battlehammer, uh, mostly I'm covering him because I like him, his character in the books. But he, he was a 5-3, he's become a 5-4, and his second ability of attach an equipment you control to target creature you control, activate as a sorcery, it's been adjusted. It... So now it works with reconfigure. So you can make reconfigure creatures reconfigure for free. So that's kind of cool that you get to do that. So reconfigure creatures were already equipments. So what this basically means is it makes the unattach free. Is that right? So it's not an equip ability. It's a reconfigure ability. And what this used to do is it made the equip cost zero, but that didn't work with reconfigure because reconfigure is not equip. Aren't those still equipments though? So that's why they changed it. It says attach target equipment. It used to say like the equip cost is zero or something like that. Oh, okay. This is the new wording that we're reading. Got it, got it. Okay. Okay. Okay, reading this article is freaking terrible if you don't also have a scryfall page open to look up the cards because they didn't put images of the cards or even a clickable link to the cards as they exist they just didn't do it and most of these cards like i said I, you never even heard of i had to look up all of these armory veteran arm scavenger dwarf old champion expedition supplier gomafada vanguard it's stupid they adjusted uh, the Lord for Warriors. Kargan War Leader is now Kargan Ward Leader. It gains Ward 1, and it gives all Warriors Ward 1, as well as a plus 1, plus 1 bonus. I see what you did there. Kargan Ward Leader is not bad. Giving Warriors a little Ward and having Ward itself means that your 3-mana Lord might not immediately die like it always would otherwise. So that's okay. Also, Ward on a thing that has an equipment is good. 
Here's, in my opinion, the big one. If you are a warrior gamer who wants to equip stuff, Nahiri Heir of the Ancients. I forgot this card existed. Oh, uh, it was the Zendikar Rising Planeswalker? Yeah, I, I think I've played this card a grand total of zero times. You know how you knew this card was bad? It wasn't even that good in Limited. I remember, like, you'd first pick this card, and you'd build around it, and you'd get what you thought was a pretty good deck. The Planeswalker would come down and just wasn't, didn't even win you the game. It was kind of embarrassing. What if I told you that the minus two now gets a warrior and an equipment instead of just a warrior or an equipment? Whoa, you get two cards? Yeah, minus two for two cards off your Planeswalker. I mean, that's definitely interesting. You have my attention. The minus three now counts warriors and equipment. So the minus three is Nahiri deals damage to target creature or Planeswalker equal to twice the number of warriors and equipment you control. So if you have a warrior and an equipment, the minus three deals four damage to a creature or planeswalker that's chandra torch of defiance territory we're definitely in for that minus two right i mean oh that minus two's hot it is the top six so that's something we need to remember you're gonna whiff eh, fairly often unless your deck's like half equipment which is definitely not likely to happen like i'm remembering the type line of uh reality chip which is legendary equipment creature jellyfish are there any of these equipments that are also warriors <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. So you could pick either side of the equation? The Ogre Helm might be a warrior. I think it is a warrior. Bottle Brush is looking these up for us. Uh, Ogre Head Helm, I think, is a warrior. Yeah. Yeah, let me look this one up. The Rabbit's not a warrior. That would be too cool. No, it's it's an equipment ogre. That's that's a missed opportunity for sure. Anyway, I was looking for a way to, in Arjuna terms, butter both sides of the bread. The minus two is, looks good, but when you add that top six clause, I'm not sure that it increases the hit rate that much. You know me. I have four copies of freaking Eliwick Tumblestrom. <laughs> yes, you do. I looked up right away to see how many Nahiris I had to see if I should play them when this alchemy thing uh goes live i have one copy of nahiri and this is really funny it's the one that came with the pre-order bundle <laughs> you didn't even open it i didn't open or craft a single nahiri from zendikar rising i have all these terrible cards i have four copies of all these legendary dragons that nobody plays i have four copies of this nahiri because i was like 15th picking them in draft uh, it's not that embarrassing that okay the card might be so i don't know if i'm gonna get to play them can i borrow your nahiris to try them out on day one for the content i wish that were a thing that could happen is that not a thing you can't borrow cards to try them out to see if you like them we're still waiting for that in the next economy stream that they do so they don't have the technology they, they can't figure it out Okay. I don't know what to tell you, dude. It's mythic. Four times is difficult. <laughs> okay. So are you ready to... So I'm not going to be jamming the warriors. Are you ready to talk about the elves? All right. So Tyvar Kel has a starting loyalty now that's four instead of three. And the plus one puts two counters on an elf instead of one. The ultimate is now a minus seven instead of a minus six. Okay. That's a significant buff. The loyalty uptick is important. It was a very weak planeswalker, but two counters is a lot of counters on an elf. So. Kind of a gamer there. Your 1-1 one, one elf token becomes a 3-3. Three, three. That's... Mm. Makes your silly discard elf become, like, potentially a reasonable card and all that kind of stuff. 
people could definitely go off with these elves decks back in the Kaldheim standard when it first hit. Definitely not like a completely woefully inadequate archetype. It seemed like an archetype that maybe just needed like one more really good card or exactly needed a couple of its cards to just be that much better to put it on the map. It actually wouldn't surprise me at all if a few more buffs to this archetype made it a player or at least like a tier two or three deck. It also makes me wonder what other elves we've had added in the meantime that no one's been paying attention to. Let me see if any of these buffs do it then for you. I'm going to turn these, what are these crazy cards, into a quiz for you. So do you know what Skemfar Avenger does? Wasn't that the three one that drew you a card if another elf died? Yeah, elf or berserker dies, uh, draw a card, lose one life. And it was non-token. Yeah, they cut the non-tokenness. Oh, okay. That is actually a pretty substantial buff, I would say. Yeah, whenever another elf or berserker dies, you draw a card and lose a life. That's not bad. All right, canopy tactician. You know what that does? Canopy taptician, people called it, because it tapped things. No. But I don't remember other than that. Okay, it's a 3-3 elf that would tap for three green mana, and it also buffed all other elves. They made it a 3-4 instead of a 3-3. It's a four mana 3-4, though. It's like, eh, yeah. anyway. Oh, it costs four mana? Yeah, it costs four mana, dude. Oh, okay. I'm off it. It's three and a green. Yeah, off it. All right, but here's an interesting one. I was talking about this with the reanimator talk earlier. Return upon the tide. Do you know what that does? Was that like the like seven or nine mana? You're thinking of Haunting Voyage. Okay. Return upon the tide was the reanimator spell? It's a reanimation spell that you can foretell. So it's five mana normally like four and a black, but if you foretell it, it's three and a black. It returns target creature from your graveyard to the battlefield. If that creature is an elf, you created two one one elf tokens. Now you create three one one elf tokens. I mean, that's a good magic card if you get those. We need some thick elves to reanimate though. Is there like some like seven nine elf lord? Like <laughs> it's just something huge? We need a Toxril that's also an elf. I mean, reread the type line. You never know. Yeah, we need to poke around and see what's up with elves. I'm going to mention this one only because you mentioned it like when you saw this article in the pre-show. Elven Bow. You may now pay one instead of two to create the 1-1 one, one elf warrior creature token. So basically it's one green for the artifact, then only one more to create the 1-1 one, one token and attach this to it. So it's like two mana for a 2-3 reach elf where part of the stat line is an equipment. Yeah, which I mean, that is a significant upgrade that turns it from being not remotely playable to being like a card I would eh, probably still not play, but at least take a look at. <laughs> Right, fun. All right, I'm so uh, I'm just gonna get out of the elves. There's a whole bunch more, and I Whoa. don't. Uh, there are a lot of cards yeah. in this announcement. Yeah, Damn. too many to read, but those are the ones that I think are most likely to actually move a needle in the deck. So for individual cards, they just picked out three cards and were like, "We're gonna give those some buffs just cause." Um, Symmetry Sage. Do you know what that does? No idea. Okay, it's one blue for an O2. And whenever you cast an instant or sorcery as Magecraft, another creature gains base power two until end of turn oh. and as flying. Okay, yep. I remember that. Card. All right. Well, now it's an 03 for one blue. And whenever you cast an instant or sorcery, target creature gains base power three until end of turn. Okay. Uh, that's, yeah. You play this on one, and then you play, like, a Consider turn two, and you're attacking with a 3-3 Flyer for a turn. It could definitely go into your Delver deck. Right. It is like a Delver 2.0, I suppose. Probably not going to play it, but it's a buff for sure. 
Spell Satchel got a buff. It now costs two mana to activate and only costs two counters instead of costing three mana to activate and requiring three counters. Did you ever play with Spell Satchel? Book counters? Okay. I played a few decks with this and it was better than I thought it would be, but it's still not that good of a card, I don't think. And also the thing with Spell Satchel, you never drew cards with it, like ever. You were always using it as a ramp spell. This doesn't change hardly anything. Now we come to the, the only part of this announcement that makes me sit up in my chair at all. Okay. We, we woke up Arjuna. You want to read it then? Dude, they made good. They finally did the responsible thing. They finally made base camp into the battlefield untapped. Hallelujah. So, okay. This is exactly what alchemy was supposed to do. Alchemy was supposed to be the format where we take cards that everyone has wanted to play forever and actually make them playable. Yeah, so base camp, if uh, people forgot, is basically just the land that taps for generic mana, but it taps for a mana of any color to cast a party creature. Boy, did this card hold party archetypes back when it was first printed. Because I do actually think as we saw in Standard 2022, the Bant Party deck ended up being one of the strongest decks in that format, kind of out of nowhere. And it didn't even have access to like this good land, basically, because it always came in tapped. I actually, I don't know if Party can, you know, still Party after all this time, but this is definitely going to be a huge buff to any Party deck for sure. Party didn't have Divine Purge to worry about. That's a very good point. <laughs> very good point. We'll see. I, when you say that this is exactly what alchemy uh, is meant to do, my first instinct is like, oh yeah, six months after a deck has ceased to be relevant, we're supposed to just give people a little dab of hope and then they can go back in and get their old cards out, maybe craft some cards and then get those hopes crushed. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Like a month into the format, you know, they could take a card like base camp and be like, oh, okay, no one's playing party. Let's buff this and let's see if the archetype actually gets there. I mean, I agree, it's way too late, but like this is the kind of buff that I feel I would like to see in the alchemy format. I don't think it's equipped to handle when you start exercising your neck. You start like thrashing around, yeah. <laughs> That's the trend I've noticed. <laughs> Over the summer, we'll have one last party before all of those college students pack it on in there. <laughs> it's going to be the name of the video, One Last Party. All right, CGB. Well, uh, we came, we discussed, we memed, we taunted, we trolled. And uh, I think that that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arena Craft Podcast. So thank you for sticking with us for another week. I, I think that the base camp buff is being universally heralded as a good thing. I just think it's... It's kind of funny that it took this long, um, but who knows? Maybe it will just provide a little bit of help to the decks that need it and actually see some play, much like Dungeon Descent. What's your, the part of everything we talked about today that was like the most exciting or the most interesting to you? Pro Tour, baby. Yeah. I'm going to be going to Pro Tours, even if I'm not playing in them. I'm just going to I'm gonna soak up the vibe. I'm going to get out of this dusty old house, and I'm going to absorb some high-level competitive magic and kind of live out that teenager CGB dream of just being around the scene. And hopefully I'll have something cool to do when I'm doing it. I'm not sure, but I'll definitely find a way to keep the people uh, informed on what I'm up to. Sweet. Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing you in the coverage somewhere. You know, when there's like 
the cameras like on the table and there's these two players and they're really focused and someone's tanking or whatever and then it pans over and you see like all the people standing behind the barrier i just want to look over and see cgb at the front like with his banner just like (laughs) sure i'll do that Whatever it takes, man. I'll be in the audience like I was uh, if you ever go back and watch like the War of the Spark trailer reaction at PAX East. I was in the audience like, yeah, that's fine. Let's go. You can find the Arena Craft podcast on Spotify or anywhere that you can download podcasts. You can also watch it on Covert Go Blue's YouTube channel. You can also watch Covert Go Blue streaming on Twitch and sometimes reliving the old Pro Tour glory days on Twitch. You can find Arjuna streaming not that often on Twitch these days as well at uh, twitch.tv forward slash arenacraftpodcast. Wanted to give a shout out to our patrons. You keep us in the game. You keep the smile on our faces. We're super happy that you donate to the show. And, uh, you know, for anyone who listens to the show regularly who has not yet contributed to the Patreon, please consider it. You can get in for basically the price of a cup of coffee. Uh, It's very easy. And uh, it keeps everyone happy. So thanks so much for doing that. CGB, I will look forward to catching you next week. And in the meantime, you're cool. Aw, later, crafties.